Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, and the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. So, Ava, hello. Um, thanks for joining the Peace Building Podcast and being a guest on the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So this is really an honor. Um, I want to tell everybody that I have Ava Bynum on the show. She is the executive director of Hudson Valley Seed. Uh, and uh, Ava, where am I finding you today? Um, I'm actually working. I'm in New York State in the Hudson Valley. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> so you're not, you're not, right now I haven't found you in Beacon where you're normally hailing from. Is that right? I'm not in Beacon where I normally am. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. But your office is in Beacon? Our office is in Beacon, uh, which is about an hour and 10 minutes north of New York City. It's right across the river from Newburgh, and it's a little bit north of West Point. So let me tell you, folks, I just want to read you Ava's bio. Uh, it's really short, so I think I'm just going to share it because it's um, rather than pulling from it because it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's very concise and really clear. So uh, Ava Bynum is a passionate systems thinker and nonprofit executive with experience in startups, development, nonprofit management, education, food systems, and community organizing. Uh, she discovered her passion for connecting agriculture, education, and community at Four Winds Farm, a small organic family farm where she worked for seven seasons. Her commitment to bringing children outside and making experiential education accessible was formed at the Garden Road School in Peekskill, New York. The Garden Road's philosophy is centered on education of the whole child where lessons meet the needs of each and every student's individual learning styles. Hudson Valley Seeds' work combines her love of food and education and follows her personal values of making both of these human rights accessible to all children. Wow, so that's really uh, an impressive bio. And um, I wanted to just begin the interview by just uh, getting a little bit of, you know, getting to know you a little bit. Um, anything else you'd want to add to that bio that seems relevant to you? I think the thing that often I don't put on that bio is that I've taken a very alternative education path myself. Um, so one thing that people sometimes don't notice is that I actually did not go to college. So I have a very unusual uh, educational history as well. Yeah. How come you did that? How come you made that choice? I was really interested in gaining um, a different perspective, and I've had uh, some mentors who have really helped me continue my education, and I think in many ways they've stepped into the role that a professor might have stood in. Um, I feel like I've gained incredible skills, and I also feel like particularly working in the worlds of food and education, I sometimes think it's actually an asset to come from a different perspective um, because I haven't been taught to think about those systems in a, in a certain way. I've learned how to think about those systems from a more experiential perspective. Yeah, interesting. Really super interesting. Um, so what do you think, like, you know, this is a, this is a podcast on peace building, um, do you, first of all, do you, do you identify with that term in, t in terms of the work that you do? It's not exactly what you'd call, it's, it doesn't have the title peace building, but do you identify with that term? I do. I, I think uh, school gardens and food and education in general have a lot to do with building peace. You know, I think about peace as being a skill and a, a muscle um, that are learned and um, therefore are taught. And I think of schools as a pretty ideal place to do that teaching. Um, and I think even about the way kids grow up and, and how you look at adults who have certain behaviors and you sort of wonder where they got those from. And so I think about schools and bullying, for example. 
if we had different ways of teaching children to interact with one another and we had less school bullying going on, think about the repercussions that would have when those children became adults and were making decisions about the world. Yeah, that would be enormous. mm -hmm. So, and and I think school gardens, um, I think school gardens have a lot to do with improving relationships at school and uh, decreasing bullying. But I also have seen a couple of studies that have proven that with a little bit more hard number statistics. So uh, I want to just, you know, talking about seeds, um, I'm wondering if you could say more um, about, um, well, I don't know, are you, are you, uh, so you didn't go to college, which is a, 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 an interesting thing to do these days because there's a lot of pressure on people to go to college. And then you started this nonprofit. Um, any, anything you'd say um, about seeds that got planted in you that made you interested in food and peace and uh, that led you in the directions that you've gone? Yeah, I mean, so for people who are listening, um, Susan is actually my mom. Um, <laughs> disclosed. Disclosed. <laughs> and, uh, and so, honestly, being raised by someone doing this work and being raised with the language to talk about peace building and being raised thinking about peace building as an active rather than a passive way of being in the world, I think was very influential. Um I think even just having language to look at dynamics, whether they're group dynamics or interpersonal dynamics, and and have some frame of reference for analyzing what's going on between those people or what's going on in this room, who's in the room, who's not in the room. I think I was raised with all of that sort of being filtered into my mind without any formal schooling in it. Um, and so I think as a result, I, I have a real passion for this work. And I also have some sort of like intuitive understandings of of some of what it takes to build peace. I loved your, you know, Ava Bynum is a passionate systems thinker. You know, that's just that you lead with that, you know, that that's a, that's a new idea for a lot of people. And there you have it, you know, you're just thinking of all the connections between human systems and human systems, and I guess food systems and, educational systems, and I'm not sure if there's anything, other systems that you got on your radar. There are. I mean, in the nonprofit world, we're starting to think about collaborative impact and how, you know, one of Hudson Valley Seed's goals is, you know, to help reduce childhood obesity. And part of collaborative impact is saying, you know, say in Beacon, the rates of childhood obesity actually go down. We don't get to pat ourselves on the back as the sole champions who made that happen. We need to also celebrate that with the families who made different choices, with the other groups who uh, made transportation easier so that families could get to better food, um, with the schools, uh, with grocery stores who are then carrying different foods. So it's not even within the food world that we then need to collaborate Um, to build peace and achieve outcomes, we even have to reach across sectors into areas we might not have even thought were related. So the reason I like systems thinking is I think about, you know, taking a holistic approach to any problem you're trying to solve. Uh, Yeah. And I know that you um, also have been really interested recently in doing race relations work. Uh, Would you say a little bit, are you interested in saying a little bit about that and why that interests you as well? Sure. Um, I've been really interested in it and have been uh, fortunate to be trained as a trainer so I can work with other white people on working to end racism. Um, I'm passionate about that personally. And then as it relates to Hudson Valley Seed and food and education, obviously race is present everywhere. um, And food and education are two of the areas where I think race and racism actually shows up the most in terms of systemic oppression. so my my individual, my personal passion for anti-racism certainly also fuels my commitment to doing food justice and food education work. So, you know, this podcast is really focusing on um, not fighting against existing structures, but looking at structures, processes, things that people are, and not to say that that's not a good thing to do. I, there's no value judgment there, but looking at 
uh, people that are creating totally new structures, new processes, innovative ideas that are generating a whole new world where destructive uh, conflict is not likely to persist the way it does now, where the amount of resources that we have as a, as a world community are not going into military, into arms, etc. So, you know, you were somebody I really wanted to have on the show because you did a pretty badass thing, I think, at the age of, I don't know when you started this, it was, tw you were 21 when you started this, uh, is that right? Or 20? Depends when you when you count Hudson Valley students starting somewhere between 20 and 21. Somewhere between 20 and 21, you know, like you, um, I mean, my own understanding is that you were, you know, trying to make a living because you had decided not to go to college and um, you started working for uh, different, you were working for different farm outfits. You went and got a job. Well, maybe you could tell the story because I think it's it's amazing. What amazes me is is that I think for the listeners, uh, you know, everybody's interested in how do you how do you use yourself in a way that's really constructive. That how do you move yourself to move in a complex system and actually make an impact. And um, be really interesting to hear. You know, uh, when that started for you with this particular. Tell us a little bit about Hudson Valley Seed, what it is, and and this question I'm asking you right now is, you know, that moment when you decided you were doing this. <laughs> You just decided you were doing this. Um, so I had been working on Four Winds Farm during high school, uh, during the summers, and then also for a year after high school. Um, and I was then hired to teach at the Garden Road School, which is a very alternative school with a very alternative education model. Um, and that was an incredibly transformative experience because they really were bringing this holistic whole child education um, to all these kids. And it was really amazing to watch the impact that was having and the way those kids were learning and the way their brains were thinking. It was a really wonderful experience. I have to interrupt you and just say, because I, of course, watched you working at Four Winds Farm. So Four Winds Farm, if you could just give people a sense of that, because that's sort of an amazing farm in and of itself. Um, and, uh, you know, my image of you is Oh, I guess you weren't driving the tractor when you were in fifth grade, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you were, yeah, I don't know when you started slaughtering turkeys, but you had kind of an amazing education there. Um, I did. With Jay I, Armour at Four Winds Farm. I think part of why it was so um, transformative besides the fact that I was working outside and having this incredible farming experience, but I also had a lot of responsibility. Um and I really see one of the biggest obstructors to peace building among my generation is sort of a general abdication of responsibility um, and a feeling like everything is just too much and you can't actually wrap your head around everything that's going on and everything that's going wrong. And so you kind of just decide you're not going to go there. Um, and what I remember very specifically about working on the farm is that you know, it was feeding people. Um, and so on a, on a mental level, it felt really good, but on a physical level also every day ended where I felt really accomplished at the end of every day, because we had completed clear tasks that had really visible results around the farm and also like, people, like what, uh, like, you know, a bed that was now weeded or more importantly, you know, a, a barn filled with harvested produce that was going to go to feed people. Um, so I feel like that was an important experience as well in terms of, I think when I was in high school, I had some very idealistic views about sort of the world and what peace could be. And I do think my time farming helped me not lose that, but also, <laughs> also temper that with like, okay, but some real stuff has to happen mm. and you have to, you have to come up with something at the end of that. Um, it's not enough to sort of think about growing food. You have to actually do it. Um, and I think that had a big impact on, you know, not just thinking about school gardens, but building them. So I, I wanted to pick up on something that you said and not to ask you to be a voice of a generation, but um, you said that many, many of your contemporaries, um, uh, I think you used the word abdicated, uh, overwhelmed by response or abdicating responsibility. But then you said something about um, 
Oh, just uh, just being aware of uh, the, the, the issues that there are out there and what needs to be resolved. And I, I wonder, you know, this may be a big question to ask, but what does it look like from, from the view? What does the state of the planet look like from your generation's eyes? That's obviously, you know, I am asking you to be the voice of your generation, but what would you say? You know, it's hard to answer that. Um, on the one hand, I feel like my generation has incredible opportunity and incredible access to information, and I see a lot of people doing really cool things with that. Um, and people, you know, around me in Beacon doing really cool things. I also think that, you know, it's, it's a little hard to wrap your head around the state of the world and to really decide that you're going to take that on, even just take it on as something to think about because it is so overwhelming. You know, if you think about climate change too intensely, it's really overwhelming, and so I think one of the challenges for my generation is figuring out how to not disconnect, um, figuring out how to stay present and take on the issues and, you know, sit with it long enough to then move into doing something about it. So, okay, so that's um, getting to you about that. So I, uh, my memory, you were out there working for, you trying to make a living. Could you tell the story of how you actually, you know, I think you were working at, uh, at another organic farm. Um, and uh, could you tell the story of, of when, the, when the lightning struck and you said, I'm starting Hudson Valley Seed? Yeah, so, so the Garden Road School was this incredible experience and it unexpectedly closed. It had been open for 10 years and a, a couple of factors collided and all of a sudden the school was shutting down. Um, and so I had been thrilled to have this really exciting work experience and all of a sudden there was again this vacuum of what on earth am I going to do with myself that's going to feel productive uh, since I'm not in college right now. So I ended up at this farm and I was in a trial period there for two weeks and it really immediately felt like not the learning environment that I wanted to be in. I'm someone who really thrives when I'm being um, sort of pushed to learn more and to work just a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Um, and and this place was just not the right fit. And um you know, I was sort of coming home from work really upset and I had started thinking about how I was going to turn the Garden Road into something that was more accessible for more children. Because even though I loved the Garden Road School, it was based on this model that the public school education system is no longer working. Let's go start the new system. And that to me was sort of how I was thinking at the time, but I started to shift my thinking into more of the attitude of, okay, so you have this alternative system that you think is really good for kids. What are you going to do and how are you going to modify it so that you can actually reach as many kids as possible as quickly as possible? And to me, that's not building private schools or charter schools, even though those are those are good models too. It's how do you take an alternative system and find a way to assimilate it into the existing public school system because that's how you're going to reach as many kids as possible within a really quick time frame. Um, so I was thinking about all those things and really disliking this new job. Um, and I remember them really kind of dimming you down, uh, not you know, not really wanting you to. Um, Oh, I don't know. They didn't. They didn't want you. They didn't want to pay you anything or very little. They didn't think you should be. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I have a memory of them not really holding you in as high regard as you ha as you held yourself, and and kind of kind of they were kind of a you know stay in your place kind of vibe about it. Um, yeah, which I think is interesting because I actually do think that relates to the topic of of peace building. Um, you know, it's fine that they had their set ways of how they want people to move through the system. But I also think the world in general does have a pretty set way of how they want people to move through the system. Yeah, right. And, yeah. And the world gets pretty bent out of shape if you try and, and skip steps, basically. You know, if you try and run a company before you've like 
spent a year getting coffee for people and then spent a year filing papers. And, you know, you've gone through every step you're supposed to before you can run the company and you don't do that. People get really bent out of shape. So, um, anyway, to make a long story short, I ended up quitting that job and that was a very scary experience. And, um, cause then I didn't have a job and can you, can you drill down on that moment at all and, uh, say anything more about it, what that was like for you? Um, yes, I actually can't remember exactly what happened, but something in particular happened. Um, there was a, a, some moment where I ended up walking into my boss's office and telling her that I was not going to be working there anymore. And I actually told her when I said that I was quitting, that I was quitting to go start a nonprofit, putting gardens in schools. And she just laughed. She thought that was the funniest thing she'd ever heard. <laughs> How bodacious of you. How hairy and bodacious of you. Right. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I decided, you know, I spent a lot of time just sitting in my apartment, you know, trying to come up with a name. Hudson Valley Seed, initially Seed was an acronym for something, you know, coming up with all kinds of different names and coming up with a business plan and the values that the company had. Um, and, and a few weeks into that, actually, a job opened up part-time running the local farmer's market and I got that job. And so that was paying for things while I started Hudson Valley seed. Um, and there was a parent in beacon, uh, named Gretchen who had been working really hard to start a garden at her daughter's elementary school. And she was having a lot of trouble doing it. And, um, and so she and I ended up teaming up. And I remember that first meeting with the principal where, you know, it was very transparent, but I remember not speaking with any uncertainty about the program. I told him <laughs> we would build a garden and this is how it would work uh -huh. and this is who would run the garden and it was going to be aligned to New York State's Common Core curriculum. Um, and, and, and he said yes. Um, and this might be a moment for me to, to just say what Hudson Valley Seed does quickly yeah. for, for yeah, people yeah. Who are listening. Um, so our first the mission when we started was um, to educate children in academics and wellness through curriculum integrated lessons in school gardens. So the idea was to go and send in educators to actually build and maintain gardens on site at schools so that we wouldn't be dealing with busing fees because that's very expensive. Um, and to also be the ones who were actually going in and doing the education so that we weren't putting more work on public school teachers who have enough stress to deal with already. Um, and the idea was that each lesson was going to be aligned to New York State's Common Core curriculum, uh, which was really important because Common Core has become this controversial subject, and it was really hard to fit in any kind of extracurricular activity if it wasn't helping kids reach the scores they needed to on those standardized tests. So we actually developed this curriculum that was going to have kids outside in the garden, tasting new vegetables, interacting with nature, while they also did math and science and reading and writing and other things. Um, and so that was our founding mission and our mission has changed slightly. Um, and our mission is now to empower children to be informed ecological citizens through standards-based education, focused on healthy eating, food literacy, environmental stewardship and academic success. Wow. Um, so it's become, it's become broader because even though we started focused on the healthy eating and the academic perspective, that empowerment piece has become really clear to us. And that environmental stewardship piece and that community piece has become very evident just in watching how children transform in this program. So our mission is now a little bit different, um, but we're still sending educators in. We work with 3,000 kids every week now. Um, we're in, you know, we're a two-and-a-half-year-old nonprofit, and we work in three counties in New York State, Putnam, Dutchess, and Orange, and we're a staff of five. And the model is still the same, to send educators in once a week who take kids outside into the garden, and they co-teach garden time with the classroom teacher. And how many, uh, you have a number of people on the waiting list, I also understand. Yes, we have um, 3,000, uh, sorry, 13,000 students on our waiting list, um, and what that represents is just under 20 schools. And we do it by numbers of students rather than numbers of schools because every school has such a different enrollment. So why is this touching a chord with people? Why do so many people want to come into this program? I think a lot of programs um, 
have either been kicked out of public schools or haven't been able to get into public schools, um, mainly because of time, uh, the common core and funding. Um, you know, time is a school's most precious resource or one of them, and there's never enough of it during the school day. Um, so I think a lot of programs come in and they're basically taking up time that kids would have been spending on math, but the program itself is not teaching kids math. So that's very stressful to teachers who now have to fit all of their teaching into a smaller time frame. Um, so we come in and students are now doing math just as they would have been, but instead of doing it at their desks, they're doing it by counting pumpkin seeds. <laughs> And that common core alignment also carries into everything else. So teachers don't feel like they're losing classroom time by having garden time. And we also uh, have some schools that do pay for the program and some schools that pay for the program in part. But we also have some schools that can't pay at all. And we do grants and uh, individual donations to make it possible for those schools to participate. So about 55% of our funding is from individuals and then a mix of grants and foundations to support the rest of it so that any school can have this program. So, you know, getting back to peace building and you being an intervener, um, you made a decision to intervene in a highly complex system that is the educational system specifically in Beacon was where I, your, Beacon was your first place, right? That was where you started. Yes. It was in Sargent, I think Sargent High School and or Sargent Elementary, elementary school. school in Beacon. Yeah. Um, and um, so uh, at the age of 21 or so, you decided to do this. You convinced one of the principals and he said, yes, uh, you just, you just, you believed it. He believed it. You said, he said, yes, you move forward. Um, it, Hudson Valley scene has grown pretty rapidly is my experience. And so now as an intervener, um, you you had a you had a clear intent i think what would you say your intent you know one of my mentors always said to me if you know your intent you know your intervention what what, what was your what would you say your intent was again you you sort of spoke to that but what would you say your intent was um my intent was originally to take the kind of education that i saw happening at the garden road which to me was so empowering for students um and teaching them so many things about how to be in the world and how to get that as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible to as many other kids as I could. And so, um, and what do you think so far, what, what do you think, I'm kind of, inter I'm interested in knowing what you think the impact has been, but maybe before you go there, maybe you could tell us a few anecdotes or some stories about what this program is like for the kids um, or groups of kids, or how it's impacted the community itself. Sure. I mean, there there are countless stories. Um, you know, there are obviously all of the moments where we see kids eat vegetables for the first time. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and this boy who ate uh, kale for the first time, and he said, kale's my new favorite vegetable. I <laughs> love that. Um, but there also have been a lot of moments that are more along the lines of kids really being seen for the first time and kids having a new opportunity to sort of take a leadership position or just be seen as, as a different kid. And unfortunately, public schools are so hectic and there's so many kids in there and teachers are so overworked that often kids sort of get put in a box and it's very hard for them to break out of that box. So there was this boy, um, Josiah, who is now a second grader, but he started the program as a first grader. Um, you know, and, and he was just sort of always calling out in class. He had a really time sitting still in his chair, um, all kinds of things. And, and he and the teacher had kind of a, a difficult relationship. And we were out in the garden and it had been a while and so in November all of the students had planted garlic and it was now spring and we were weeding all of the garlic beds um, and Josiah as usual is kind of like talking to a friend he's not really doing what he's supposed to and all of a sudden this other boy reaches out and he thinks he's pulling up a weed but he grabs a garlic plant not realizing that it's a garlic plant and Josiah turns and he goes what are you doing? Don't you know that that's a garlic? <laughs> he planted back in November and he recites every fact ever taught him about garlic. And, you know, the teacher's jaw just drops open. 
because she's never heard that kind of information retention from him. And she's also never seen that kind of engagement in what's happening in the classroom. And so a couple things have happened in that moment to me. Um, one, Josiah has gotten to take this leadership role in his classroom. Um, two, something has clearly reached him and sparked interest in him and wanted him to be engaged in his school and his classroom and made school feel like a good place for him. And the third thing to me is that the teacher has now seen Josiah in a totally different perspective um, and has gotten to see a very different child emerge in relation to learning. Um, And so all of those have really interesting impacts in terms of what the rest of Josiah's school experience might be as a result of that. That is is super cool in terms of what how it's impacted. Well, it's it's um I was I was going to say how it just impacted that particular student, but then in fact I'm saying well maybe not. Maybe it's more than that. It's the student, it's the teacher, it's perceptions, it's uh it's prejudgments and and shifting prejudgments, which is so mm-hmm. critical to building peace. Um, would you say anything, could you say anything about the impact on the group of students? Have you seen them connecting to each other in different ways or either, you know, because some of this work is really about, about systems shifting. So either the group (laughs) of students or the community itself, how has this work impacted at the systems level? Yeah. So I think what's interesting that I think about is I, when I think about groups who go to a ropes course for team building, I think part of the draw of that is to take everyone out of their environment where they have their set dynamics and bring them somewhere new. Um, And what I think is so unique about a school garden is it is a new environment. So everyone's having a chance to make some new rules and new connections um, and, and be together in a new way with some new rules. But it also is on site at their school. So there's a little bit more integration that happens in terms of the space they create in the garden and the ability to bring that back into the school building. And the other thing that's unique about it is that it happens every week. So unlike a field trip like that, where it's sort of a one-time transformative experience, this is something that kids are now revisiting every week. So we're going to the garden. We're going to review our garden guidelines, which have a lot to do with respecting each other um, and supporting each other and respecting the earth. And so those are revisited every week. So I think that has an effect on that group of students. And then the other important thing that and, I... Th- and just to... Uh, is there anything that you've seen? I, I know that might be a difficult question, but and, and I know these things aren't often researched and documented, but anything you've noticed about a shift or change in that group? I think um, the biggest change I've noticed is what I've heard from parents about kids being really excited to go to school on garden time day since they know it happens, you know, every Wednesday or every Tuesday, whenever they have it during the week. And since we know that dropout rates start in elementary school, if we're hearing that kids are more eager to be in school when they know they have garden time, that to me has really important um, impacts, especially because it just helps build school culture. If you have a school where all the kids feel safe and like they're being invested in and like they want to be there, that has a really important impact. The other thing I've noticed is that since we work with every student in the Beacon Elementary School system, which has four elementary schools and 1,500 kids, since all of those kids have this program, when they see each other outside of school between schools, they have something really interesting to talk about. So parents have shared that you know, first grade girls are having a play date and they're talking about how tall their bean plants. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's really wonderful to have that connection between parents and between children from different schools in a community. And then the other thing is, you know, there is a huge amount of parent engagement that's going on and a lot of parents working together who often wouldn't otherwise work together because their kids all go to public school. And so you have kids that are diverse in terms of race and class and gender and neighborhood, all kinds of things. And as soon as you have all of them participating in this program, and once you make food, what they're all learning about and what everyone's talking about, which is such a, uh, something that brings everyone together, people come together on food. You also build a lot of, um, community and cross barriers just on a very, um, zoomed in community level. Um, And the other thing that I think is interesting is that Beacon is a gentrifying community. Um, So there's 
more people coming in sort of from the Brooklyn area who tend to be uh, more affluent and tend to be white. And that's coming in um, to the Beacon City school system. And it's having an interesting impact. It's not it's not showing up in the schools as quickly as it's showing up on Main Street in the community, but it's still there and you can feel it when you're in Beacon. And when I think about people and how people often come together, it's often around food. So we are starting to have this new Beacon, old Beacon divide. And and that's true in the other districts we work in as well. You know, there's always a divide in the community along some line, I think. And in Beacon, it's around new Beacon, old Beacon. Um, so if you have those kids all coming together around food um, and you have parents coming together for community events around the school garden, that in itself to me creates peace building and creates connections that might otherwise be there. It's, it, uh, it creates a kind of a, a web and transcends any kind of difference because everybody, everybody's interested in, in eating. Right. Yeah. Um, such an amazing, amazing program. How, how do you, how do you think, um, as a, as a, as an intervener, as, as a social entrepreneur that you are, how do you think you have, uh, shifted and changed, um, as a result of this work? That's a hard question. I feel like I have continued along that path that I mentioned in terms of, translating idealism into real action. And I think I've really changed the way I see people and systems. So many things that people are and that people do and that people have are so incredibly systemic. And so I think... What what do you mean by that? You know, what people eat, um, where people live, where kids go to school, what kind of uh, resources kids have while they're in school... A lot of that, a huge amount of that is decided, I think, by larger systems and less by the individuals themselves. Yeah, Uh, I know you were telling me that in the summer, um, the gardens, obviously, you have this issue because a lot of the stuff is growing in the summertime and the kids aren't in school, but that a lot of the summer garden produce is going to feed kids. You want to say a little bit about that? I thought that was interesting when you were telling me about that before. Yeah, so Beacon has a very high free and reduced cost lunch rate, which means during the school year, um, a little over 50% of kids are receiving lunches that are either paid for by the government or heavily subsidized by the government. And during the summer, those kids now don't have that food source, and a lot of kids would just basically go hungry. Um, So there's a great program in Beacon that we actually don't coordinate. Another nonprofit coordinates it where there are five sites around Beacon where kids can show up and get a free meal. They don't have to prove their eligibility. They just show up. Um, And the Beacon City School District actually prepares the meals. And we harvest all the produce from the school gardens and deliver it to the school cafeterias so that it gets processed to be part of the school lunches. So like cherry tomatoes and cucumber slices, things like that. And then our educators are at summer meal sites doing sort of fun nutrition education activities with kids. Um, And one thing I want to say about all the activities in terms of working around healthy eating is that none of the activities are in any way um, shaming or passing any kind of judgment on on sugary foods or junk foods or anything like that. They're all focused on getting kids really excited and enthusiastic about eating vegetables. So they're kind of two ways you could approach getting kids to eat differently. And one is making them afraid to eat what they're currently eating. And one is to get them really excited about eating something else. Uh, what, what, do you have any sense of what percentage of kids are food insecure in, in uh, like Beacon, for example? Yeah, so in, in Beacon, um, the schools range, but the district average is 51% for free and reduced cost lunch. So we would say that... What are you, if, what are you saying? They're free in... I, I'm not catching that phrase. Free and reduced cost. Oh, free and reduced. So kids yeah. that qualify based on their family's income levels gotcha. to, to receive either a free lunch or a reduced cost lunch in their school cafeteria. Yeah. Um, so... So those families are all food insecure families. So that's 51%. There is also in every community a margin of people who are making just too much to receive those benefits, but are really not making enough to adequately feed their families. So I would argue that the food insecurity rate in Beacon is actually higher than 51%. And then where we work in Newburgh, it's closer to 85%. Wow. 
wow, wow, wow. So, um, you know, this is, uh, I know we talked many times, you know, as, uh, as you were growing up, and just because food is interesting to me, uh, super interesting to me, that uh, we would say, you talk about this whole idea that if you get the, the food system right, you get everything right. Um, I don't know if you think that's true or any comments about that in terms of, you know, getting the food system right and its impact on building a different kind of world. You know, I, I do still think that the food system is one of the only systems that really touches every other system in a very genuine, real way. Um, I also think that it is very, very linked to so many other systems, including international trade and all, all kinds of complex webs. And so I would say that getting the food system right would have really big uh, repercussions. I mean, the fact that we... Um, throw out as much food as we do while there are people who don't have enough food to eat, um, you know, tells you something about how flawed the system is. How much food do we throw out? You know, that I'd actually have to look it up, but we end up wasting, I think, a little over 40% of all the food we actually produce in this country. Wow. That's... Um, you know, because food is in grocery stores and it has sell-by dates, so you see... Um, you know, you, you see piles of food being thrown out that are, you know, lettuce and tomatoes and apples and it's all perfectly edible, but it has passed that date where it's supposed to be, you know, no longer on shelves. And I, I'm not entirely sure about that percentage, but um, it's a very high percentage of food that we're getting rid of. Which has spawned the, the dumpster diving movement. Yes, <laughs> yes, which is not quite keeping up with how much food is being thrown out. Um, what is the dumpster diving movement? Uh, the dumpster diving movement, dumpster. yes, is yeah. uh, is people who are basically going uh, out back when grocery stores, you know, you find out what day grocery stores basically dump their food um, and they're going in and retrieving it and distributing it to people who, who need it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, we are uh, running towards the end of our time. And, um, and I guess I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. One is that, you know, uh, you're just, uh, I, I know, I know I'm your mom, but I also know that many other people share this view that you're a pretty impressive person. And, uh, I'm kind of curious if in a number of years you have a next act, um, a next great use of self, uh, as instrument to impact a system. What could you imagine that might be? The kind of three options on, I mean, I'm, I'm not leaving Hudson Valley seed anytime soon, but eventually I could imagine either sort of packaging Hudson Valley seed up and moving it to other cities because even though farm to school has become this great movement across the country, I actually haven't found other programs that reach kids every week for an hour a week with this kind of um, a program. So it'd be cool to reach other cities with this program. And we've been getting calls from other places asking us to help them start it. The other two options are just totally different. And, um, you know, one is that I really do like the anti-racism work I've been doing, and I can imagine continuing that. And uh, the other is that I could kind of imagine doing more wilderness stuff with kids since I love backpacking and being the outdoors. And I could imagine doing that in a very hands-on way with kids, or I could imagine sort of continuing my nonprofit management track and, you know, working with another nonprofit somewhere. Yeah, really uh, all very interesting, interesting ideas. And um, so, um, so uh, I do, I have, um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say as we wind, you know, wind up talking about the specifics of Hudson Valley Seed. Is there anything that you think we've left out or anything that you think would be really interesting for the listeners to hear? I think what might be interesting for people to hear is that there are a lot of people behind the scenes who absolutely made Hudson Valley Seed possible. You know, and, I, and I'm saying that because people who are listening who either have an idea and are trying to do it alone and needing help, that, you know, it's important to know that other people are out there to help you. But also for people who are out there and maybe have just had someone approach them with a really cool idea, that support really makes a big difference. And I had people who just sat down and listened to me talk and pose challenging questions that helped me get better at explaining Hudson Valley Seed. There were people who stepped in with contributions that were as low as $5 all the way up to thousands of dollars to help us get started. There were people who coached me in, in basically anything you can think of. So having a support network 
is really important. And so I, I would want to make sure that people see Hudson Valley Seeds founding as a team effort. Yeah, so you really tapped into a wave of interest about this topic. And yes. uh, so you got a lot of support as a result. Yes. Uh, not that you didn't deserve it, but it was also, it's also meeting a need for a lot of different people and a lot of, uh, in all different kinds of walks of life that yes. want to see this, want to th- see things around food happen differently than they currently are happening. Yes, and education. And education. So, um, all right. So, uh, I have been winding down all of these interviews with a, a kind of lofty, two lofty questions. Um, you know, one is that it's it's really hard whether you're intervening with an, at, a, at an individual level of system or a group level, a team level, or an organizational level, uh, or let's say here a planetary level. Um, you're going to be a whole lot more successful if you have a really compelling vision of where you're headed. And um, because I've done conflict resolution work for so many years, I am, uh, those of us in, in, the, in the field are well aware that many people, when you get to the topic of peace, they will say that peace is boring, um, that it doesn't have the kind of intensity, the kind of um, aliveness. You know, there's a reason why in the media, you know, they say, I don't know if you've heard this saying, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, you know? And mm-hmm. so, so, so much of our media is dominated by, by different kinds of violence, by different kinds of uh, violent conflicts. Um, so a question that I'm asking people is, is if we, let's say we were successful as a planet at getting ourselves to the next level and moving beyond the intense focus we place on violence, destructive conflict, and warfare, what do you think we do with ourselves? You know, I like I said in the beginning, I see peace as a very active process. And so, honestly, I think we would have a lot more to do and we would be a lot busier if we were aiming for a peaceful solution. Um, I think conflict is one of those things that kind of overrides the human body. Like when you're angry and you, you know, some of your rational thought goes away. And, you know, sometimes if you're angry enough, your digestive system stops, like the whole system stops when conflict is going on. Yeah. You know, just thinking about food and and systems and human Mm -hmm. systems. Conflict is not actually one, a a well-rounded or healthy way to be, but two, it's not very productive. So it kind of channels everything into a single goal. And when you channel everything into a single goal, you not only wear out the system and sort of fatigue the system, but you also have to abandon pretty much every other system. So if we were living in a peaceful world, I actually think everyone would have a lot more to do and everyone would have a lot more energy to do it. And I also think that peace and being in a peaceful system is one of those systems in which the resources become regenerating. So all of the things you have to put into peace start generating even more resources for you and the community in the world. So then the sky's the limit. It's just generative and we don't have a clue where it could lead us, but something totally different from where from the, from the lower common denominator that we're currently acting on. Yeah, I also think it's hard. I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of it kind of only takes one bad egg to ruin the bunch in this kind of situation. You know, you have, say you have every country uh, no longer have armies or nuclear weapons or whatever you want to pick. As soon as one country does, it kind of becomes a domino effect where everyone feels like they have one. So you do have to somehow incentivize it. Um, because I, I think it's hard the way the world currently is to think of, of peace as being a natural system that everyone can adhere to. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, my other lofty question is, is related, but, you know, if you follow the dollars so often, you kind of get a sense of what's going on in the world, and we spend a huge amount of our planetary resources on on specifically on war systems, and then probably peripherally, peripherally uh, that much more on, on war systems and, and their impact and um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you, and, and I think there's a perception as well that peace itself or anything that is uh, peace-oriented, you're not going to make a living doing it. 
<laughs> so uh, I don't know. That's another question. Do you think that peace, peaceful aims can be profitable? That actually is a lot um, more of a clear question to me than the previous one, because I think there's no question that peace is profitable. You know, the money being made off of conflict is even bigger than the military because it costs um, more than a college tuition for an individual to keep someone incarcerated for a year. Yeah. Um, so when you think about how money could be redirected and the fact that food is being wasted, you know, imagine all of the money that could be generated by actually redistributing that food properly. What I think it comes down to is that peace is profitable for everyone and conflict is very profitable for a few people. So I think that's what's going on here is that conflict is actually not profitable and you can see that effect everywhere you look. People who can't access good education, people who can't access good food, people who are incarcerated, all kinds of things. So the costs of conflict are extremely high. Are extremely high and peace is very profitable but it's profitable in a more equitable way. So mm -hmm. I think that's where some of the difficulty comes in is that there are people who will have to relinquish their stronghold on, you know, the people who are making money off of, of weapon manufacturing and privatized prisons, all of those things, that goes away when you start looking at a more peaceful model. But I do think that peace is absolutely profitable. Well, listen, so if, how, if people are wanting to get in touch with you, I don't know if you're open to that, uh, if they're interested in how you've used yourself to intervene in a complex system and uh, interested in just learning more, what would they do to get in touch with you? Our website is www.hudsonvalleyseed.org and my email is on the website and people should absolutely feel free to reach out. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's uh, been really fun doing this with you. And uh, I'm sure at some point we didn't even touch on the complex relationships between the military industrial complex and the food system. And maybe that's beyond the scope of what we're doing. But it's also very interesting when you look at the kind of intervention you've chosen. There's a lot of things that, that I can see in terms of the work you're doing. You get food right and you've done a whole lot to build peace in the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, thanks a lot. And, um, and uh, I hope we get more opportunities to, uh, to have you on the show. All right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please mail them to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.